Right. Well, you get the song, and I'm probably going to completely massacre your name. A quick hello, and we're good to go. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I believe my name is also long for the song, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing about the song is it's invented to be able to fit anybody's name in. So even if you were called, uh, uh, what was the thing from Mary Poppins? Ultra califragilistic expialidocious. I could probably fit that in. Yes. So anyway, <laughs> today we're talking about understanding and semantic SEO. Uh, we had a chat earlier on, Kore, and it was absolutely delightful and brilliant. You're incredibly smart, and you know so much about this stuff. It puts me to shame. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to keep it relatively simple, still a little bit okay. geeky, and then we're going to invite you back in two or three months for a Kali Cube Tuesday special when we do a double bill, and we'll have a really geek, geeky one at that time. So this is the introductory geek uh, for the future geek that we're going to be having in two or three months. And as always... Oh, hello, guys. There's loads of people here from all over the world. Do tell us where you're from. I'm in Paris, and I would assume, Kore, you're in Turkey. Yes, I am in Turkey and also Istanbul. Brilliant. Now, I looked you up. I do the brand SERP every time, and here's your brand SERP when I look up your name. Uh, if we can show that, Anton, that would be delightful. Yeah, there you go. Um, with the knowledge panel, and we have the overview with your Twitter boxes ranking right at the top there. Brilliant. And then the videos filter pill. Now, I thought I'd dig into the videos filter pill. This is what we see in America. We see these filter pills on knowledge panels, not necessarily in the rest of the world for the moment. But then I thought I'd look into, hello, Jeannie Hill and Stefan Johnson. And I wanted to look into the video pill. So if we show the next screen, we get the video filter pill. There you go. The vertical, when you click on that, and you can see there we've got our friend Andre with his show. He gets an accent as well, even though he doesn't actually have an accent on his name, Andre. <laughs> And we're down there in third place, which isn't bad. When uh, when we applied Andre's tips and tricks, we ranked a little bit better, so that's brilliant. And then yep. there's another vertical, which is the third video vertical, if we show the next screen. There you go, brilliant. Where we don't show at all, and that's just to indicate through the knowledge graph, people are going to be able to filter through different verticals, and those verticals are specific to the knowledge graph, to the knowledge graph filter pills, and then you have this other vertical. So there are multiple verticals going on in brand SERPs. Life on brand SERP land is going to get increasingly complicated, and I'm really happy because it gives me more work. Right, on with the show. <laughs> we, 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 uh, it was you, Karei, who wrote the description. Now, what I'm going to do is put up on screen because it's a really long one. And we start off with what is semantic SEO. Then we go on to what are the key points to look for and what work needs to be done. And then we have that last phrase, and I'll let everybody read that rather than reading it off because it's so long. Um, but this is what we're going to go through. And I would like to point out before we start, this is Corey's words, not mine. Corey's questions and statements, not mine. I have no responsibility at all for answering <laughs> any of these questions. So we're going to start with the first one, Corey. What is... Semantic SEO. Okay. So I can explain it actually with a simple sentence. Semantic SEO includes the meaning, not just the strings or any kind of shape or any kind of uh, the basic information retrieval. For instance, uh, within a lexical search engine, by saying lexical search engine, I mean 
a kind of search engine that actually does the stemming or lemmatization or a couple of things, but actually it doesn't understand what we actually mean. So between main, the main difference between a lexical search engine and also the semantic search engine is that they process the queries in a different methodology. They actually expand the queries with seams and reverse the meaning. And then actually they give a kind of order these queries then they generate the questions and they start to actually affect extraction from the open web so that they can actually match the best possible documents. Right, um, basically Google said from strings to things, which is much shorter, much simpler, yeah. but you've explained it properly, which is absolutely delightful. I mean, Google used to be a, a machine that counted strings of characters and links, and it now doesn't count strings yeah, of characters uh, so much as understand. Yeah, definitely. And uh, for instance, at the moment, we have Prabhakar Rakhavan on the uh, search department of the Google. I am not so good about the pronunciation, I hope it's correct. He actually has uh, two different research about the ad hoc retrieval. Sorry for the concept. Ad, ad hoc retrieval means that we will perform a retrieval based on a query, basically a right. kind of search behavior. So he has two research. One of them is about uh, the Markovian behavior. In other words, the research name is are the web users Markovian. It means that actually whether there is a connection between a behavior on the search from today to the six months later. They try to connect all of the search behaviors step by step. They try to understand sequential queries or correlative queries between the sessions or between the months. And the second resource that actually Prabhakar joined is just about the information retrieval. It is from 2007 and it's actually a long research and they actually explain that what are the types of information retrieval and how the lexical semantics help for it. So at the moment, they actually use both of the methodologies, the phrase-based indexing they are using, and also they use semantic relations between the words or semantic closeness and relevance of the words. They actually work way much better together. Right, brilliant. And that's incredibly interesting. The first one you were talking about, it sounds to me like what I thought the topic layer would be in the knowledge graph. My theory was that I would search for learn to play the bass, and it would assume I was starting and provide me with beginner results. And then as I move through presumably the learning process, the results it would provide will be increasingly complex. And I talked to um, Nagu Randan from Bing, and he said, mm -hmm. Bing at least doesn't work like that, but it's a great idea. Um, are you saying that it is going to work like that or it's already working like that? And has it got anything to do with the topic layer? It's actually similar, but the, the, the problem is that uh, when you look at from the point of view of the searcher, we always think that all of the queries that we write, they are perfect queries for taking the result. But when we look at from the search engine side, it's not so obvious. And most of the queries, they are so disambiguous and trying to creating a kind of well-formed query from an incomplete query. It's not so easy. So yeah. entities and entity types, they're actually really helpful for understanding a query because once you are able to recognize the entity there, you will take the type, then you will take the root attributes. Let's say it is a country, there will be a capital, a currency, a kind of population, border, army, and etc. And once you have it, you can look at the previous query, or you can look at all of the popular documents, and you can take the most popular attributes, and you can match them with questions and with answers. So this is one of the methods. But let's say that the entity is not well known, and there is a missing hmm. fact in the knowledge graph. So if there is a missing fact, it means that actually they will predict 
and it is called predictive information retrieval. And there is another thing that uh, they call, it is open information retrieval. In the open information retrieval, they try to find unknown entities. So let's say we have a document, completely new document, there is no information and we can even create a random document there. And they will use open information extraction there for creating a kind of graph just from that web document. And anything that they actually explore there, it will be clustered with other things. So it might not exist directly within the knowledge graph, but there will be also unknown entities as well. Right, which explains two things. One of which is that the NLP in CaliCube Pro it extracts entities, and it, I've got the difference between recognized and guessed ones, and those are the guessed ones. And the other is I was talking to Ali Alvi from Bing, who does the feature snippet, the, the, the Q&A mm -hmm. for, for Bing, mm -hmm. and he was saying, actually, we often don't use the knowledge graph. Presumably, they're just doing exactly what you, you, you're talking about there. Yes. And it's taken me two years to, to, for anybody to actually explain that to me. It's okay. The, the thing is that when you focus on the info, uh, fact extraction and question answer pairing, knowledge graph can make things a little bit slower and also it can limit you because you will always check the knowledge graph and you will say that, okay, if this doesn't exist there, we won't use it. And it is so limited, limita uh, it will create so much limitation. And the other thing is that uh, most of the things on the web, they might not exist within the knowledge graph, or even if it does, some attributes might not exist there. For instance, root attributes are usually called the basic things as root attributes. For instance, yeah. as I said just before, if it is tree, there will be a color, a type, a branch, a kind of Latin name will also exist there. If it is a kind of car, everything will change and the brand and the product will be connected to each other. We will have a max speed and motor and other parts. And uh, these things are a bit easy to see, but also there are rare attributes and also unique attributes. They are the hard ones. And most of the time, right. the hardest questions, they're about these unique and different things. Right, okay. And move, moving on from that, that's already phenomenally interesting. But the, the featured snippet idea, I mean, Andrea Volpini from WordLift has said, you know, maybe, maybe or perhaps the uh, feature snippet is the first step towards the knowledge graph. I mean, if the feature snippet <coughs> is this predictive information, then the predictive yes. information then futurely feeds into the knowledge graph at some point. Yes. Would, that, would that be fair? It is. It's close. It is about actually candidate passage answers and generating candidate passages and filtering them out. Let me explain. I know that this is supposed this is supposed to be simple, but I, no, no, no. There is no actually, what, what, what's really interesting is is it's all incredibly clear. You're doing a beautiful job. Keep going, Karai. Thank you. <laughs> so, candidate passage answers or generating candidate passage answers is actually about again pairing the question and the answer. But the problem is that most of the time we don't use questions within our queries. We just use three or four different phrases. And yeah. the thing is search engine will need to fill the gaps. So it is called actually, for instance, Q2Q. Let me explain. It is called keywords to questions. So we will give the keywords and they will generate the questions. Then they will rank these questions according to their relevance to the possible search activities. And once they order these questions, they will just seek for proper format, properly formatted answers. For instance, if your question starts with how or which or what, the answer format will also change. So when you change your quest question format, the sentence structure will need to also change. The problem is that, as you say, 
in the in the beginning of the feature snippet era, era I, I believe it was around 2018 or something like that, most of the feature snippets included wrong information. For instance, mm -hmm. it was saying that Obama is a communist and he will make a coup. Or it was saying that horses have three legs. Or it was saying that actually dogs can fly. Because they didn't check the facts. They just checked the question format and they mm -hmm. checked the sentence format and they matched them. So then actually they have started to extract the facts and they have increased the threshold. In other words, a kind of relevance threshold, but also accuracy threshold. Once they believe that this is the accurate answer, they have started to show the feature snippet. And the thing is, they also have realized that for... <laughs> for dogs can fly on screen. For people who aren't watching the video who listen to the audio, we just had dogs can fly on the screen, which is why Kurai laughed. Okay. And... Uh, it, okay, I, I remember it. So the thing is, once they actually started to, uh, they have started to extract the answers and the questions, and they have realized some certain patterns. Because whenever we have a kind of question for an entity, they realize that the same question exists, but also from another entity from same type. Once they actually have all of these questions from the same pattern, they have started to also extract all of the answers from same pattern too so that they can actually match all of them together in a way. And next step is actually about topical authority and coverage because they have started to use the most authoritative sources for taking the facts because they realize that it's simpler and more secure for their prestige or for the users. Right, okay, brilliant. So they're using the authoritative sites to be safe, but presumably building out. And the data we've got at CaliCube suggests that they're getting pretty adventurous with some facts, at least about the entities that we're tracking. And I'm calling that web facts uh, uh, <laughs> version one from, from last year and the year before. And since about uh, September, October, we've had web facts version two. It started as an experiment during the summer and it now appears to be uh, right there fixed into the attributes of knowledge panels, which is delightful. So the next question is, what do we do? What practically do we need to okay. focus on? So that section, I will try to give the simple suggestions because to be honest, semantics is not technical SEO. There is no equate line there. And the mm -hmm. thing is, for every core algorithm update, they change actually all of the keyword clusters and all of the possible document mat matching document styles. And that's why actually we see that some sites are crushing and some sites are increasing the traffic tremendously because they change how things are related to each other for every step. The first key is that we should realize that the search engine doesn't care about small sites or small bubbles. By saying small sites, I don't mean sites with small traffic or small web page count. I actually mean that if you don't satisfy big amount of queries or big amount of population, if you don't satisfy so much, big a big mass, actually they won't care about it so much. And the other thing is that when it comes to the understanding and relevance between the things, they won't so focus on specific spots. You can think that, okay, this is not relevant to that, but it might be for the search engine because it's cheaper. It's because solving the billions of queries uh, for every core algorithm update is not so easy. So they will prioritize the big bubbles all the time, and they will move all of the things together. But it's, it's just question, question, question. It doesn't mean that I have to have a big site. It means to it means that I need to be part of a big bubble. Yes, because everything is connected to everything on the semantics. 
And let's say that you are talking about a specific thing here, but the thing is this, this thing is so small and it might not be so important for the search engine. So it means that actually you will need to cover a little bit area or surrounding area and you will need to connect all these things to each other so that actually you can create a kind of contextual consolidation there and you can take the search activity and historical data from the search engine because once they are able to trust your source with an actual history, the actual user history, it will be easier to re-rank your source. Actually, I will publish a case study about that. And it's, it also uses uh, the trending topics or trending queries for generating more historical data and transferring the authority from one vertical to the another one. And uh, it, it, will, it will explain the semantic content networks, how we actually create all these semantic content networks. And when it comes to the suggestions, the first thing is that lexical semantics and the semantic SEO are different things. For you, two things might not be synonym, but for search engine, it might be synonym. And just as I said today earlier, dog and cat, they are not synonyms, but for search engine, they are actually synonyms for some time. When it comes to the, again, for the lexical semantics, for instance, buy and sell, they are not synonym, but for search engine, for certain situations, they are synonyms. You can tell that my website doesn't sell it. It doesn't mean that, search engine will care about it, still you will need to mention it and still you will need to help the user for that purpose so that you can actually create enough level of a kind of relevance or maybe even satisfaction for the possible search activity, even if you don't sell. Because if someone searches for selling, they will also search for buying too. You will need to cover both of them to be able to exist within every step of the user. Right, okay, sorry, absolutely brilliant, but I want to come back a step. Uh, okay. To the bubble and, and and the niche, because I, I well, I'm going to ask you: Is it a reasonable strategy to say I have a niche? Let's let's plucking something completely out of the air. Brand SERPs. It's a niche in SEO. In order for me to exist in Google's brain for my niche, I actually need to connect myself to the overall SEO industry, or it simply won't make any sense to Google and it won't look at me. Is that correct? Actually, uh, still they can look at, but it is also about a little bit the context vectors. Let me explain. <laughs> so when it comes to the contextual vectors, they mean that there are two different words and they, they are together. So it is also about a little bit Anna Patterson. And when I mention her, I also need to mention Bilslavsky because whatever mm. I learn, actually most of them is coming from Bilslavsky. So thank you for him. I hope. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us are in that in that situation. Is it? it we yeah, he so much from great, Bill Slavsky. Yes, definitely. He's a great educator, and I always uh, mention that. And for the next SEO case study, there is a thank you note there again. And uh, when it comes to the Anna Patterson, she is an important person because she is the inventor of the phrase-based indexing. When it comes to the phrase-based indexing, there are always different types of co-occurring metrics. Oh, we seem to have lost Kare a little bit. I'm not sure if he's frozen for everybody or it's just for me, or maybe I've frozen. Not 100% clear. Uh, oh, right, you're back again, Kare, kind of half back. I'm going to mention the only name I can remember, which is Xinluna Dong, who, who was the person who looked into uh, extracting unstructured data from the web. Uh, that's the only person's name I can remember who uh, has done anything to do with this. But that was just to fill in time, because you're back, Kare. Carry on. Okay, I'm, I'm, I continue from the context vectors. Yep. So basically, when you put two different words to, 
to side by side, you will create a different contextual vector for the search engine. A vector represents a binary number. It's not phrase, okay? Whatever we write, the search engine, the machine will take it as binary digits. Mm -hmm. So once they see a unique unique combination of numbers, one and zeros, they will understand that this is Jason Barnard and this is Bill Slavsky, for instance, or Corey Tuber Kuber. So once they understand that these things are connected to each other, they will take other things from the same type. These types will be person and also consultant, for instance. And once you create all of these possible contextual vector combinations with a natural way uh, and consistent way in the time, they will actually start to connect you to do, maybe you will can, you can be even a centroid within that cluster and you can be even a representative example because whatever people, whatever the users search for X, they will also replicate this question for other things from the same type even if it doesn't exist, because Google actually creates the search engine result pages before we search it. It is called synthetic queries. This is not a necessary situation directly for the first time queries, because they will need to use rank brain for understanding these query. But mm -hmm. when it comes to do so close things, they will actually generate all of these synthetic queries and they will take all of the related documents. They will cluster the documents. They will choose the representative ones. And then they will attribute the relevance of the represented ones to the that one, hello, Bill. And once they actually have that centroid, it means that it is the best possible document there. And for instance, let's say you want to beat that web page, they will check that actually, whether you include more information or not, or whether you cover other things from the same type or not. And once it is like a, a fight like that, actually there will be other things there, and I will stop there because it's a bit complicated, but it is about context vectors in this context. <laughs> right, brilliant. And, and if we come back, I mean, I'm going to show this article from um, Andrea Volpini, who published it earlier on, and he's, yeah. he's talking about uh, topic clusters. And this is something that at Authoritas, uh, Lawrence O'Toole has been talking to me about a great deal. And it's become a bit of a kind of a popular idea in the industry. I mean, basically, focus on your topic, become an, uh, an expert in your topic, become the focal point uh, for your topic, and you're going to win the game. And this is the article just for anybody who wants to go and read it, how to create content hubs using your knowledge graph. Now, what I didn't bother doing was read the article because I know you were reading it. And so you can give me a quick overview of it. Excellent. Excellent. It's... Uh about topic modeling and topic clustering. And I will suggest you to check the Google Colab for understanding it because the document will be a little bit more complicated and longer. If you don't have enough level of time, just try to read uh, the Google Colab example because there also you will be able to implement it. For instance, when it comes to the bird Sorry, topic, which Google Colab example? From the Andrea. Uh, Brilliant. I just wanted to be sure. The one from that article. So read the article and look at the Google Colab example if you can code, which I can't. I looked at it, my eyes glazed over, I fell over, and I thought I'll let Corey explain it. Okay. The thing is that most of the time when you create, when you want to create a kind of topic cluster or topic model, it's always about clustering algorithms. And according to the parameters that you use, right. all the cluster will change. For instance, we hear that that we will need to actually mention that uh, what is the similarity level between the words. The thing is, you will need a, a really, really good uh, lexical and language library there. For instance, if you have a word there, such as machine learning, the algorithm should understand that this is different from machine and the learning at the same time. This is something entirely different. 
And from there, it will they will actually need to check other relevant things there, such as deep learning or other types of subtypes and other things. And then they will start to cluster all the similar things. They will choose a centroid. Then they will actually use your similarity threshold. Once they use your similarity threshold, anything that under the threshold will be clustered with machine learning. Then they will say that under this machine learning cluster, these are the most used terms. These are the most used entities. And this is a cluster. Then you will have another related cluster within a similar distance. So by using that, actually, you will be able to understand your competitors and their topic models. And you can align your website according to the Google's own perception, because they will choose the websites that they can understand. And they will think that actually the context there makes sense. Well, what's the best way then to find your competitors? I mean, obviously you say, right, let, let's analyze the data. Let's take the data from your competitors, analyze it, figure out where the sweet spots are, the tickly <clears> spots for Google, as I'm now calling them. How do you figure out who the actual competitors are as opposed to the people you're envious of for their success? Yes, it can be used. And uh, most of the time, actually, for semantics, I just use my brain, to be honest, uh, because the tools, they're a little bit... Uh, so generative and they might not catch everything. Usually I create a kind of content template, then I create sentence structures there, and then I imagine actually the entities and their attributes and possible related questions there. Then I add their answers. I choose the best possible format for there. I ar arrange the anchor text and I, yeah, I put them as well. Then actually I start, to pub I start publishing the content. It's not so easy because you will need to train all of the authors and you will need to check all of the other sections as well. And the other thing is that when it comes to the semantics, there are other things that machines can't think there. For instance, like the hyponym or hyperneme, meroneme, holoneme, synonym, antonym, there are lots of other things in terms of semantic relations between the words. And you will be able to uh, consolidate your context and specify your context by yourself in a better way. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Sorry, I mean, I, I actually was thinking that we've got an antonym. Uh, he's behind the scenes putting up funny jokes. And just to be <laughs> sure to understand that Kore is laughing every time Anton puts something on screen because he promised to laugh every time Anton <laughs> puts something on the screen. Um, right, mo moving on. I mean, your last phrase was, and I'm going to read this, and definitely, and sorry, and last but definitely not least, how to use semantic SEO and ent entity-oriented search understanding for creating better topical authority and categorical quality and hi with historical data. I can't even read this. And convince semantic search engines new click satisfaction models. Now, that is such a mouthful, and I challenge anyone. I'll put it back on screen. I challenge anybody. <laughs> to understand that at the first time of reading, except Bill Slowski, who will. But can you explain that in something kind of in the next five minutes that makes total sense to everybody and not just Bill Slowski and yourself? Okay, so I will try to explain it a little bit. So the thing is that when you have a semantic search engine, you should understand how they process the queries and how they, they how they rewrite your queries in this context. Because right. most of the time, the SEOs, they don't look at the things from the point of the search engine in terms of semantics, because they will actually replace your words within the query with an other words, and they will actually check all of the relevance distance or distance between the words or the vectors to be able to understand that, okay, is this document relevant enough? 
or not. The other thing is that the entity-oriented search is actually it's, it's actually about that you will create a website and you will need to use semantic annotations for every web page segment. And every segment will be about just that specific entity and anything anything after that, that they will be about the attributes of that entity. And if you have for any, another thing from the same type, you will need to connect these things to each other. But let's say that this another thing is not so prominent or it's not so popular and there is not enough level of search demand. In this context, still, you might try to open a new page or you can actually cluster these under the prominent one. You can put them to the same web page as well. So once you actually create a kind of knowledge base. So but just just really quickly before you carry on, didn't you just describe basically saying, I've got a main entity that we, we Google understands within this chunk of text. Mm -hmm. And if I have something that Google will, won't understand because there isn't sufficient search volume, then I need to put it underneath that in that kind of mini niche in a bubble idea we had earlier on. Yes, you can cluster them within the same page at the same time, because most okay. of the time, most of the time, I try to create less pages. And I do it because I try to improve the value per web page. And also, it comes from a little bit, uh, I'm not, again, I'm not so good at uh, for pronunciation, but it comes from the Tristan Upstill. I can even type it, but I can't uh, say it because I know these names from reading, not, I didn't hear their name before. I guess it's the correct one, Tristan Upstill. He has a good quote for that. He says that, the cost of retrieving, the cost of retrieving should be lesser than cost of not retrieving. So they actually define two different costs there, cost of indexing and cost of not indexing. They are able to actually call, calculate a kind of possibility that if we don't index this web page or if we don't care about this web page, what will be the cost there? So they will compare this type of cost. And if you open too many pages there, and if there is not enough level of information there, or the search engine is not able to satisfy enough level of queries, or if they are not able to relate enough level of queries to that web page, it means that that web page is not so necessary for the search engines. And sometimes I try to cluster them together. This thing is not so relevant for the news industry. In the news industry, even if there is not so much demand, actually covering that topic with a different news article is actually a little bit uh, better in this context because in the news SEO, it's not just about entities. It's also about breaking news score and also right. being able to give enough level of unique sentences or unique articles in a fastest way. Right. Yeah, I mean, news is, is being up to date and not necessarily the, the entity level, but aren't you pushing it a bit far in the sense that wouldn't the idea of thin content because there isn't enough kind of queries that are going to be satisfied by this page, isn't, isn't that pretty extreme? Actually, it depends on the situation a little bit. For instance, uh, when it comes to the Google, actually broad appeal is more important, and I can explain what broad appeal is. The broad appeal means that the same website will actually cover more languages or more topics at the same time because Google will try to satisfy more users with less websites or less and more quality websites because they are the most important ones. The rest of the websites on the web, they will be able to, actually first they will try to take these websites if they are relevant enough or they are similar enough for the most authoritative ones. And then actually, if there are there is enough level of confidence score, then they will actually think that, okay, these new websites can be ranked 
as well for the most competitive ones. Which so suggests that, that, sorry, which suggests we're going down a path where everything's just going to repeat itself. We're all going to copy the authoritative websites and the world's going to get increasingly boring and narrow-minded. It, that section is also about information score because also there is another patent for that too because uh, they also know that for some for a query the user most of the time will find similar types of information with different order and different structure and format so in this case they will actually try to find unique information within these web pages so once actually i create a kind of web page i try to make it best possible uh, comprehensiveness there and with the best possible order of the facts or order of the headings in this context. Okay, and there's a question. Does the order of the information play a big role? I, I can copy an authoritative website, obviously not copy-paste, but I can, I can duplicate the idea in the presentation. But if I get a better order and the order makes more sense to the machine or the machine yes, thinks, thinks it's going to make more sense to the user, I win the game. Yes, and the thing is that I already tried it, to be honest, and uh, I have used actually exact copy, by the way, once, for instance. The Bing removed all of the website, and they removed all of the website manually, not algorithmically. And right. uh, when it comes to the Google, they didn't remove it, but they just put, for instance, at the beginning, it was huge. There was a big jump on the traffic when I published the website. Then after a point, they have decreased it more than, I guess, like 70%, but still it is alive and still it takes around 800 clicks per, per day, exact copy content. Oh, and nice. the, yes, the other thing is that uh, when it comes to the changing the existing content with a, the, with a better comprehensiveness, it also works too, because uh, once you create a better comprehensiveness there, they will actually try to understand that what is the main search intent for that query, and if the main search intent is satisfied within the introductionary area or just a little bit at the beginning area, then you can put into the middle area the second search intent satisfaction point or a kind of possible search activity satisfaction point there. So if you're able to create a better order there and if you're able to also align your web page layout with that, yes, you can win. Right. Now, does that push... I mean, we've got a bit off semantic SEO here, but if... if if that's the case, then it suggests that the skyscraper technique still works. And it also suggests, if sorry, <laughs> it's, it's, from my perspective as a user, on mobile in particular, for a lot of questions, I'm not looking for a vast article and lots and lots of information with multiple yeah. aspects. I'm looking for a simple answer to a simple question. Yes. What happens there? It is also, that section is about click satisfaction models. It's also another research paper from Google. <laughs> For instance, uh, yeah, <laughs> well, it's all relevant. That's why I always try to read these things because all of these questions, I also asked all of them before. So that's why I also read them. So in the click satisfaction models, they try to understand for what type of queries, what type of click models exist. For instance, if it is currency related, a query, they understand that a quick click, in other words, you click and then you out. It's actually satisfaction right. because they just check the number. They don't read anything there. But if it is something else, for instance, let's say a kind of disease or let's say a kind of big product like a car or let's say a kind of house selling or buying query. In this context, the actual search engine knows that they will open a second web page there or they will try to make a second location search or something like that. And they try to see it on that source or from that source. So based on that, actually, uh, even if you 
just wonder just one thing. In this context, you will need to actually create some in in web page jump links. Mm. You will need to create a kind of jump uh, a possible anchor uh, sections so that user can directly see that section. And the other thing is that uh, once I create my web page, most of the time I know that most of the users they won't land to the tab. Most of them actually will come from people also ask or featured snippets or other areas, and they will land directly to the related section. That's why I also put related things together there, because if they wonder this, they will also wonder another thing too. Sounds a little bit about query path. Maybe I can explain it uh, later. No, no, you can explain it now. I'm, I'm sitting here listening away. The query path, off you go. Okay, the query path, it represents the order of queries that user performed. For instance, in 2019, they have made an announce from their blog. They called it conversational search. It's uh -huh. also a representation of the contextual search. And there, they have shown that if you search for, let's say, if you search for Christmas, then if you search for Christmas tree, they actually, they can also suggest you some movies on the top because they know that it is actually your next step maybe. And it's just a sam sample there. If you search for Turkey, and then if you search for the carving, they understand that you are searching for carving the turkey and they will give some suggestions. And the thing is, when it comes to the query path, it's a little bit more complicated. Let's say that we have two different web pages. And as a user, I search for apple, then I search for banana. And also, let's reverse it. This time I have searched for first for the banana, then the apple. You can reverse it. <laughs> okay, I was reading something there. So let's say that banana and apple, they change the place in terms of the query order. And the thing is, once let's say I have searched for apple, then I clicked a result. Then I go back to the SERP, then I search for the actually this time for the banana. This time, if the, the, the result that I clicked, even if in normal conditions, even if it is at the second rank, search engine can put it into the first rank because of the query path. And they can try to see that whether this result is actually authoritative enough or not. It is, is it able to satisfy all of the fruit related things from that attribute or not? And query path can actually modify or re-rank your search engine results. My yes. Sorry, just to <laughs> clarify that, it's rearranging an existing set of results as opposed yes. to creating a new yes. set of results. Yes, it is a re-ranking algorithm, actually, to be able to see which page is better. And it is an always-on and always con continuous, a kind Brilliant. of always-on algorithm for re-ranking the results. That's why usually I try to cover all of the things from the same type. And of course, I prioritize some sections, the sections that I will be able to connect to each other. When it comes to that turkey carving, for instance, if you write about turkey or recipes for uh, special events, you might need to include the word carving as a verb and also as a tool part at the same time because it's one of the possible activities there as well. Right. But <coughs> I wouldn't put banana in the same page as turkey unless I was making banana stuffed turkey. Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated and less uh, so rare. And you might need to include it, such as maybe alternative recipes. And you directly you can mention it in a way. In this case, right. even if maybe not that page, but that source still can stay as relevant to that section. Right. I mean, so I mean that just means that I can't be funny. Uh, whether whether that was funny or not is obviously debatable. But the idea that a, a machine doesn't have a sense of humor is pretty important. Uh, we're showing 
live now. I don't know why we're showing that. Oh, is it because we're ranking second on YouTube for Semantic SEO during the program? This is Anton's favorite game. It's to get us ranking on YouTube while we're live, which is absolutely brilliant. But can we wrap this up with the idea? I mean, a semantic search engine, a machine that understands the world, doesn't have a sense of humor, doesn't have a sense of poetry, doesn't have a sense of, it doesn't really have culture. It doesn't actually understand. Is that fair? I mean, I can't make jokes or write poetry on my web page anymore if I want to rank. It depends on the topic because if it is... <laughs> it depends. Thank you. Yeah, it's a bit, uh, I, I must, I, I hate to tell that because uh, when it comes to the understanding, they can understand the concepts. They can understand the related, thi related things to each other. For instance, just other day, I am actually creating a kind of course for the traffic think tank and I am I will use the dog foods for my second lecture there. And I was generating semantically relevant queries there. For instance, for one of, I have used two templates there. One of them is, can dogs eat? The other one is, is X good for dog? So basically, can dogs eat apple, can dogs eat banana, can dogs, et cetera, right. et cetera. Always uh, there is a food there. And then actually I realized that whenever there is not enough level of, <clears throat> enough level of relevance on the SERP or the documents, Google replaces the entity with the best possible close example. For instance, the other way I, I have searched for as a taco, taco type. It's a food from United States, the taco, you know? Yep. And uh, I have used a really, really weird taco type there. And there was not the word taco in the query, but still they were able to actually relate these things to each other because the taco was the hypernym actually. And that type was the hyponym. So there is a relation between them in terms of taxonomy and also in terms of lexical uh, semantics and relations. So they're able to replace them or they're able to relate them to each other. So in this context, I can tell uh, they can also understand the humor on a level because I believe that's why they started to care about a little bit the comments and reviews for the products. Oh. As well. Ooh. Because uh, I, I have actually read a couple of research papers about that too. They were trying to understand the sentiment within the comments, within the reviews, within the comments, or within anything there. And after two or three months, they have started to say that they will test, test the nofollow links. Because if they're able to understand all of these user-generated content, Ooh. it means that they will be able to use the links within this user-generated content in a healthy way too. And there are some AI algorithms even now, they try to understand which review is fake, which review is authentic. Even there are these type of algorithms now. So I believe Google already figured that out uh, with their technology and that massive data. So I believe, and I know they can understand the humor, especially for the news industry, by the way, for the critics and or for the humor but they might not prefer to use that type of content for serious things. That's why I said that it depends on the topic. Right, okay, so brilliant. That's incredibly insightful. And banana turkey is a dish I will make this weekend <laughs> for my poor suffering daughter. Absolutely brilliant, Karai. That was an amazing delve into semantic SEO, which went off onto all of the patents. And now Google search algorithms function from pretty much A to a probably about D, we've probably got E to Z to go, and we can do another episode for that next time. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much. Now we're going to tell you all about next week, everybody. Uh, it's going to be David Bain, 
and he's going to be talking about something slightly less geeky, which is crafty content creation, uh, which is definitely less geeky, definitely incredibly useful. And David is a delightful chap, and he knows his stuff about content creation. Now, Corey, can you please pass the baton? Of course. I'm actually honored to mention David Bain because he's a great content creator. Once I have performed a podcast with him and uh, he has a really detailed amount of knowledge about it, I, I can tell. Within the 15 minutes, he improved my vision for podcasts for any kind of angle, to be honest. So definitely watch it. Brilliant. Thank you very much. We're going to have 40 minutes with David Bain. So if he can improve yours in 15, he's going to improve mine three times more. And I'll just extend it to 45 minutes to make that statement true. Thank you very much, Corey. A quick goodbye so to end the show. Thank you, Corey. And thank you, everyone who was watching. And keep putting messages on the screen. Thank See you later. You. Thanks a lot. No.